Hello again, everybody. Anthony Harris here with another episode of Looking Back, Moving Forward. Today, I have a friend who's who's going to share with us some from her perspective as a white person about this whole issue of uh, systemic racism and um, white privilege and being anti-racist. And she's been she's one of the things we share in common is that we're both from Mississippi. Uh, she was born and raised in Petal, Mississippi. I was born and raised in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which are just neighbor city. Uh, they neighbor, they, they're right next to each other in, in uh, Forest County. And uh, she has been on this journey for some time. I've gotten to know her. She's the author of, of a book with Hezekiah Watkins. And some of you may remember they were guests uh, on this podcast some time ago. Uh, talking about her book, but I've asked her to come back to offer her perspectives as a white person in this in this whole systemic racism discussion, white fragility, and so forth. So let me just say, Andrea, welcome. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Well, I am so glad you're here. And let's just get this started with sharing with with us some of your your ideas on this on your personal journey towards anti-racism uh, what you've learned along the way um, what has surprised you what has uh, those those aha moments that may have come uh, what what has propelled you along this this journey what keeps you going because i know there are some people who start out on the journey and they just say oh this is too much i don't want to do this anymore and they they revert back to something more convenient and more comfortable for them. But I, I know that you have not done that. You have maintained your, your, your commitment and your consistency in this journey towards anti-racism. So with that, let me just get you to talk a little bit about what that's been for you. Well, let me let me just start by saying that, um, you know, I, I did grow up in, in South Mississippi in Petal, which, like you said, is, is right there, you know, just neighbors to Hattiesburg where you grew up. And uh, I've been thinking a lot here recently about one of the most influential people that I have had in my life, and that was my grandmother. And uh, I've, I've spoken about uh, my grandmother and how she is the, the Shiro and the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing today. And uh, yesterday, in fact, was her birthday. Um, and oh, so she's, to her. Yeah. thank you, thank you. So she's, she's been on my mind and in my heart uh, quite a bit here lately. Um, but I can remember, and I'll start back, um, you know, from when I was a little girl and some of the experiences that, that I had growing up in Petal, Mississippi, which is predominantly white. And so um, I can remember my grandmother was um, a nurse at the Forest County Health Department for 30 years. And so when she retired, um, she made quite a few friends in the black community in, in Hattiesburg. And so, um, Everywhere that I would go, I like to say I was her shadow <laughs> and, uh, you know, I would go with her to visit shut-ins or to do run errands. And so I, we were always running into people uh, when I when I would do these things with her. And so um, I, say, I saw you, you posted something today, I believe, about your your grandmother and a picture, several pictures of her. And I saw one of those and I said, I think I, I recognized her face. Really? With the Forest County Health Department, because when we were in school, the nurses from the health department would actually come to schools to give us 
our vaccinations. Uh-huh. And maybe that's where I saw her. I when I saw there was one picture, I said, now I I recognize the face. So when you say she had some engagement and involvement in the in the black community, that's that puts it together for me. So I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing that. It was probably the the old photo that I had of her in her nursing uniform. Mm -hmm. um, yes. uh, but, I can remember, um, I would go with her uh, to, and, and this is just how she would refer to it as the black community in Hattiesburg. And she would go and check people's blood pressure, um, you know, run errands, but take groceries, drop them off. And so me being just a little girl, this was after she had retired from the health department, um, maybe, you know, around the age of five, six or seven, I going from what I saw every single day in pedal and having, you know, my culture uh, reflected back to me and mirrored back to me to going on these errands with my grandmother and just shadowing her and especially going into the black community in Hattiesburg. I saw the, the discrepancies there, you know, even as a little child, I saw that, hey, this, you know, the, the houses look different than the houses that, you know, I live in and that are in my neighborhood. And so, um, you know, from a very early age, I, I picked up on that and, and observed that even as a child. And so my grandmother, um, you know, was, was one who was always involved in trying to make a difference. And for every interaction, um, when we would go somewhere, if it was to the store or someplace, you know, and she would run into former um, patients of hers from the health department and just, you know, really embrace them and, and have a good conversation and, and talking with them. Afterwards, she never failed to say to me, starting when I was a little girl, you know, Andrea, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. It does not matter our skin color. And I, that just resonated with me and it, it, it stuck with me, you know, even as a little child right. and she, there was never a time where she failed to mention that. And so, um, as I started to grow older, you know, I started to pay attention to what was happening in my environment, you know, what was happening in my schools, um, seeing the, um, uh, the differences, you know, and just, just observing that through uh, following along with my grandmother. And so I started to notice, hey, you know what, I can count on one hand the number of black students that I have in our entire school. And, you know, just me being a very inquisitive type of person kept, kept asking, why is that? You know, I mean, why is it that, you know, there's a black community way over here, you know, on, on one side of town, you know, and then there's a white community here. Why are, why are things so different? So even as a child, I was trying to put together these pieces of the puzzle and figure them out. And, um, you know, thank God I had an angel of a grandmother who was able to not only not only point out these differences, but to do it in a way of, but you know what, you can do something about it. You can make a difference. Let me just ask you about your grandmother, because obviously she had a, as you said, a tremendous influence on you. Do you know how she got to the point where she was able to speak to you in the way she did in talking about 
uh, skin color and it doesn't matter and so forth. Did y'all ever have a discussion about that? How she, how she came to that point? I'm not sure if she always felt that way. Her parents influenced her in some way, but was there something that occurred in her life that uh, changed her perspective? You know, that's a good question. I've, I've often wondered that myself and, um, the, the conversations that we had, um, she spoke more through her actions than mm -hmm. she did through her words. Okay. And, um, you know, the, what I, I've come to, um, I guess, put together through things over the years is that maybe it was her involvement there at the health department, mm -hmm. um, and getting to see, um, you know, firsthand, um, you know, the inequality, um, the differences, and just knowing, you know, at the core of her heart, this isn't right. Right. Yeah, and I think a lot of people in the health profession, not that, I'm not going to say they don't see color, I'm sure they do, but I think more to the point, they see a person in need, they see a patient, and they have either been called to that profession, they've gone into that profession for the purpose of uh, providing health care. And, and when they took on that role or they, they received that pen as a, as a nurse or they've taken as a doctor the Hippocratic Oath, you know, your job is to help people. Your job is to help heal people. Your job is to make people healthy. And, and I think not that everybody in the health profession are, are that open-minded, but I just want to believe that because of the field that she was in, her, her priority was it doesn't matter what race this person, I see that this is a black person, but this person's here because they need my help. Right. Well, that's, that's an interesting story. I'm, I'm just, um, when you were talking about your, her influence, and I'm sure, you know, we're all products of our environment and we hear things, we, you know, parents and other adults, the media, they feed things to us that, that perpetuates some of these stereotypes. So thank you for sharing that part. Now keep going with your, your, your journey here. What, uh, what happened next? Okay. Well, so fast forward, <clears throat> um, to just here recently, um, you know, when I, uh, made a trip, uh, this was a couple of years ago to visit family in the Hattiesburg area. Um, this was not too long ago. Um, before the, uh, no, I'm sorry, it, this was right after the Civil Rights Museum in Mississippi had opened in Jackson. And so um, I had written several short stories based on the Civil Rights Movement and what was going on with the Freedom Riders in uh, Jackson, Mississippi back in 1961, and uh, was really interested in stopping by the museum and checking it out. So um, I made a slight detour that day <laughs> and decided mm -hmm. that I was going to go and, and just see, you know, um, just, just check it out. So uh, I, I, I go there and um, and talking to one of the museum attendants, um, you know, just talking, sharing a little bit about what I had written and that I was a writer and just interested in learning more and checking out the museum. He said, oh, well, we have, you know, a, an original Freedom Rider that works here at the museum. 
And I just was beside myself. I was like, you've got to be kidding. You know, I, I really have to meet this person. Is there any way that you can introduce me? And so um, he pointed across the, the gallery um, to where Mr. Uh, Hezekiah Watkins was standing. And he was with a group of high school students at the time. And uh, so I got to kind of just stand back and observe him interacting with those students uh, was my first, you know, impression of him and just to see, um, you know, <clears throat> the kinds of things that he was talking about with these students. And mm -hmm. my uh, first impression right off the bat was, wow, you know, mm -hmm. I, I just was was wanting to know more. I heard a little glimpse of, of his story and what he went through. And so um, he finished speaking with the, the high school students and then uh, the museum attendant introduced me and we just hit it off, you know, just from, from the very beginning. And um, from there, we discussed the possibility of, you know, telling his story of what happened to him at the age of 13 and being arrested, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, and uh, being arrested as a freedom writer sent off to, to Parchman. And, our collaboration on this book together was, I would say, more eye-opening of an experience than any amount of research that I have done over the years into the civil rights movement, because I was hearing things firsthand from someone who had lived it, lived this history, and had experienced it. And this was not something, you know, that I had been taught in schools, you know, it was not something that was a part of my curriculum and my history classes. And so there was a part of me that just, I was thirsting for this, this knowledge. I wanted to know more and more so within me, I was like, why have I never been taught this? Why, why is this all new to me? Why is this, you know, not a part of the, the curriculum in schools? Why aren't we learning about it? And mm -hmm. so there was a, a deep, um, I guess, frustration on, on my end. You know, um, I was feeling upset about the whole thing um, and really wanting to dig into it deeper to find out more about why. Why aren't we learning about, you know, this time in history? Mm -hmm. So, um that was really the beginning of, of my journey, um, more so, you know, I would say than, than my childhood experiences. What was it about that interaction with, with uh, Mr. Watkins? And by the way, the title of that book is Pushing Forward. Am I correct? Yes, that's correct. Pushing Forward. So y'all go out and get her book. She and, <laughs> and Hezekiah would appreciate that so much. Everybody calls him heck. I, to me, he's... <laughs> I still call him Mr. Watkins, and, and he is—he is such an engaging individual, and 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 so he possesses so much knowledge and experience uh, about the whole civil rights movement and the freedom rides and so forth. And and he is a person that is—it's well worth it if you're ever in Jackson, Mississippi, and go by the Civil Rights Museum. Be sure to go by and ask if you can speak with Mr. Hezekiah Watkins. And tell them that Andrew Ledwell and Anthony Harris said, "Come by and see him." <laughs> so, what? What um, was there any particular um, sort of um, aha moment for you? Some epiphany that that kicked in during your initial or at some point in your interactions with on this project collaboration. Well 
I think for me, it was just my inquisitive nature at first, you know, um, and hearing little pieces of his story, I kept asking more and more questions, trying to figure out, well, how did this happen? You know, what exactly took place, you know, and wanting to know more of his story. So I think it was at first the curiosity um, aspect of it, but the more I got to talking to, and you know, he's heck to me by now. Yeah, you know, I <laughs> don't call him Mr. Watkins. Every or, now and then, I will say heck, and I'll say, okay, Mr. Watkins, that I. Yes. But yeah, he's, he's yeah, he he doesn't get hung up on that at all. Right, right, and 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 I think he knew, you know, well, here's this white woman who has taken it upon herself to come and tour the Civil Rights Museum, you know, so he knew that there was, I think, a part of me that was, you know, really wanting to dig deeper into this part of history just on that initial meeting. And I could tell with him, you know, he was very passionate about wanting to have his story told and me wanting to find out more. And there was just that initial connection that the two of us had. And he's always said from the very beginning on that, that very day, and it's kind of been really the shining light that's, that's guided us through this whole uh, journey together. He said, you know, you have a reason for being here at the right. museum today, you know, and I have my reasons for being here at the museum. And for some reason, God allowed our paths to cross. And so that that really has just kind of been the guiding light for us and you have continued your journey and one of the things i i, I use the term earlier being anti-racist uh, i'm not sure if you're familiar with ibram kendi's book yes mm -hmm. and he talks about these three categories the segregationist the assimilationist and the anti-racist and Talk a little bit about where you, I know you're not a segregationist. Right. Okay. <laughs> I'm, we're going to push that. No, yeah, you're, you're not there. Um, but do you see yourself as an assimilationist or an anti-racist? And how do you distinguish the two for yourself? I think um, in what um, Kendi said, you know, and I have read his book and it's absolutely wonderful. He said, you know, it's not enough to not be racist. We right. have to be anti-racist. And so I absolutely fall into that category. And, um, you know, we, I, I look at my experiences. Um, I look at my background, where I came from. And, uh, you know, I feel like I, I have a responsibility. Um, I was afforded white privilege because I was born with the, the color skin that I have. I didn't ask for it. No one asked for it. It just, you know, it is what it is. But along with that, I feel there does, there, there comes this responsibility um, in educating yourself, um, learning about that, the part of history that isn't taught in schools. Mm -hmm. Once you are afforded that knowledge, um, you know, you, you have a responsibility of what to do with it afterwards. You know, do I um, continue on this journey of, of trying to, um, you know, continue to educate myself and educate others? Uh, to be anti-racist and, um, you know, to try to dismantle a system that was put into place um, from the very foundations of our country and origins of our country. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely identify myself as an anti-racist and have been doing work ever since. And, and that's good. I, I think that's, uh, in 
white fragility and and in um Kendi's book he he both of them talk about this not it's not enough just to say i'm not racist it's right. necessary but it's not sufficient and and in robin d'angelo's book she talks about the binary choice people say well i'm good therefore i'm not a racist only bad people are racist and <laughs> and i'm just um, curious on it as you have embarked on this journey i've heard you use the term white privilege and, and there are lots of people who get who have all kinds of reactions when they hear the term white privilege yes and it for some people they feel they get defensive about it some will get angry about it some will be in denial about it but i think what most of them do they they go to that word privilege they forget mm -hmm. about the white part they go right to privilege and say i wasn't privileged i had to work five jobs to I'm exaggerating. Or I grew up poor. Yes, I didn't have any privilege yeah, afforded to me. Yeah. <laughs> Talk, if you could say some things to somebody who, who is confused or in denial or is angry or defensive about that term white privilege, how would you explain that to them? Well, I think in simple terms, it's not having to be concerned about certain issues regarding your race. Um, you know, as a white person, and th this was something that I saw um, brought up in discussion not too long ago. Um, say, for example, the color of Band-Aids, you know, being mm -hmm. labeled flesh, you know, tones, or, you know, flesh, your skin color. And I'm like, well, who's, who's flesh or skin color? You know, because it's always looked like yes. mine, but it's <laughs> yeah. never looked like someone else's, you know? Yeah. And so there's, there's that it's, it's, you know, I don't have to necessarily, you know, worry, you know, about if I, you know, have a scrape on my finger or something, you know, my bandaid not matching, you know, the, the color of my skin, you know, something as simple as that, or, you know, if I'm pulled over, um, you know, by, you know, a, a cop or trooper or whatever, when I'm driving, my first reaction is I don't have to worry if I'm going to lose, potentially lose my life. You know, I'm, my first thought is, ah, I hope I don't get a ticket. Right. You know, so, I mean, those are just like some just basic comic common examples of, of what I feel white privilege is. It's not, it's the absence of, you know, not having to worry about something. You know, I heard it described once that being white in America means never having to think about it. Exactly. That it's, it's, um, as you say, you're born into a group that owns these privileges and these privileges have accrued to them not because they've earned them but simply because they are a part of the group <clears throat> i was watching i was looking rather at a at a someone had posted on on social media who was very uh very much in denial about uh white privilege and they they put this picture up of a very poor white family and it was they they were there were kids on the front porch and it, obviously some very they were living in the depths of poverty and the caption underneath it was something about so is this called white privilege and my response to that is that the condition of that family is not a result of the skin color 
Right. Okay. You can put another black family with that same condition and you can bet your bottom dollar that their condition is due to the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I think the people who are in denial about that white privilege thing, and I, and I think as long as people are in denial about it, we're not going to get anywhere. I, 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 I want to delve more into what do you, how do you convince somebody who's white that they possess the privilege? It, it, you, you use your own, your own journey as an, as a, as an example of that. Uh, and I don't, I'm not sure how many discussions you get into. Um, I know it's probably more challenging to be in that, that kind of a discussion with a family member who is in denial about it. Right. Uh, so well, what, what tips can you give people who, who need to broach this topic with somebody, either a coworker, family member, um, that is it an issue of readiness? People mm -hmm. have to be at a point where they're ready to um, change their perspectives. What do you think? Well, I think that's an excellent question and it's a very challenging one. Um, and I think um, just speaking from my own experiences, you know, and I, I do have family members, you know, who um, fit into that category that you just described and as well as friends and, and other, um, other people that I know. But I think the main thing that I have found um, in, in starting these conversations and having these open dialogues is it's it's incumbent upon uh, the other person as well to be open to wanting to learn more and to um, you know just just being not having uh, a closed mind about things but it's also incumbent upon the person who is engaging in these dialogues to kind of have the necessary tools in their their toolbox you know and you mentioned a few yourself and I think it it um, it all starts with educating yourself um, you know, on, on these topics. And uh, Dr. Um, D'Angelo's book, you know, um, White Fragility is an excellent resource that I often use and refer to. Uh, Ibram Kendi's uh, you know, How to Be an Anti-Racist is another. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I would say that the, the, the number one thing is to, to first start with yourself and to first, you know, educate yourself on, on how to constructively engage in these dialogues. Mm -hmm. um, and then just go from there. You have to be willing to meet people where they're at. And so um, if you see that someone is, is very combative, you know, um, they have race, racist tendencies, you know, you might need to go a little bit further back in your, your conversation and, and, you know, start at a different point. So uh, it just all depends on the person, the situation, but I continue to stress, you know, educating yourself first and foremost. Yeah. And I think as we, as we hear from people as yourself and others who Robin D'Angelo and others who are out there trying to get the message out, um, getting people to be willing to listen. And I'm one of these people, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm not optimistic that things mm -hmm. will change, okay? I can't give up hope, but I see evidence all the time. We just look at the recent election. You and I were talking about this earlier. How, what does, what does it say about where we are in terms of race? And I think that election was, about lots of things, and I think chief among them was was race. 
when you have over 70 million people who say, I want four more years of that. Uh, the first four right. were not enough. Let's have some more. Do you, so, you know, that's where my, my lack of optimism kicks in. I'm thinking, right. Convince 70 something million people that this is messed up. <laughs> this, this racial climate that we're in is this country is divided and that needs to be a reckoning and, and they're not listening. I, that's that's a difficult thing to and and it's something I've pondered myself, you know, over and over again with the election and you know, but I also look at Georgia, you know, and yeah, yeah. see what happened with Georgia and how it turned blue and mm -hmm. you know the work of Stacey Abrams. And so when I when I start to feel discouraged about um, you know what you were saying, you know, I. I look at things like that and think to myself, you know what, um, change has always been slow to come. You know, um, we still have a lot of those old, um, you know, racist mindsets that are, are in the picture still, you know, and so um, that's, that's a byproduct of what we're, we're looking at and what we're dealing with. But um, I, I feel that we, we still have a lot of work to do. We have a, you know, our, our, our work is not over. I feel in, in many ways, as, as much as we've been set back by this, this administration, you know, we, we need to really start um, getting on top of our game and, and, you know, trying to make change happen. And I feel optimistic that that will come. And, and Georgia, I feel, is a, a good mm -hmm. example of that. So. Well, it's great to have that optimism. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, for one, hope the, the voters in Georgia uh, will make a, a wise choice in who they send to the U.S. Senate from, from their state. But, yeah, you're right. It's, we oftentimes will lament and we will even get a little... Um, down and, and and not really see some things that are on the horizon that are that are that are positive mm -hmm. and you know I guess sometimes you have to take your victories where you can get them right and you have to measure your successes sometimes in smaller increments but here's where my my head is and my heart is uh, we're in the year 20 almost 2021 and we're having conversations about race that we had back in the 60s and 70s. Yes. And, and how, how long do we extend grace to people to say, okay, they're just not there yet. Let's give them another year. Let's give them another five years, another 10, another generation. Um, and I, I will admit that there are some things that have changed. And I think the aftermath of George Floyd's execution showed that there are some there are many uh, people of different cultures and different ethnic groups uh, who, who felt moved to take action, to do something. Um, so anyway, what do you think? Uh, yeah, you know, um, it, it is beyond uh, my comprehension at times uh, to, to know that we are almost in 2021 and yet, you know, to still be at the point that we're at. Um, you know, Heck and I have, have spoken, had many conversations together about just how much damage this administration mm -hmm. has done in regards to that. And, um, 
you know, um, I was just reading uh, earlier this week um, an article, actually it was a photo essay um, in the New York Times called Hidden in Plain Sight, The Ghosts mm. of Segregation. Right. Just a, a really, really fantastic article and piece um, done by Richard Fishman. And so it was featuring uh, various vestiges of racism. Um, for example, like bricked over uh, colored entrances, you know, mm. of places. And so you got to see, you know, firsthand um, these, these different places that are trying to have either like bricked up, you know, these, these um, um, kind of eras of segregation or, you know, else they've turned them into something else. The Greyhound bus station there in Jackson was featured. Right. Um, and that's, of course, where the, the Freedom Riders in 1961 mm -hmm. were arrested on breach of peace and automatically, you know, sent to the city jail and then later on to Parchment Penitentiary. Um, I did see, and I never noticed this, you know, in Hattiesburg, the Sanger Theater, um, that there was a, the, on the side entrance there a completely bricked over wall, which was the colored entrance into the theater. And oh, I, I knew that well. I mean, when I was, as a kid, we used to, that, that was the only way to get into the Sanger Theater was that entry through an alley between these two buildings and, and the concession stand. I mean, it was so crowded there. I mean, they had not, I mean, it was just a tiny little, almost a hole in the wall to get into their place. And then of course we had to go upstairs to the balcony because we were not allowed to um, sit amongst the whites there. We had to sit mm -hmm. uh, up in the balcony. But um, anyway, go, I'm, I, I interrupted you. Why don't you go ahead? Oh, no, I was just, just pointing out these, these different places. And, and like you were saying, many of them I have seen, a lot of them were in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. um, like the Sanger Theater or like the Greyhound bus station. But the point is, uh, you know, what, here it is, we're almost in 2021, you know, and like me living my entire life almost um, in Mississippi and passing by the Sanger, you know, um, countless times and seeing that, that, you know, bricked over wall, but me never knowing that that is what it was for, you know, and that was its purpose. And so, you know, does covering up, you know, or bricking up or attempting to erase these signs of segregation and racism and inequalities, you know, found by systemic racism, does this relieve the suffering it's caused? Shouldn't we be talking more about these, these types of things? Or? I agree, yeah. That, and, and I've seen this in other places where there have been attempts to uh, I think something went on in Dallas not long ago where uh, some government officials wanted to put, and maybe that was Houston, I don't remember, but put a plaque over or cover up color like the water fountain. Mm -hmm. and, and there are people saying, no, this is, this is history. Right. This is a reminder of, of a part of our history that we can't afford to just wall up or put a plaque over and just not think about it. Right. That it, um, by looking at these, these vestiges of, of Jim Crowism, these symbols of Jim Crowism, by observing them, hopefully it will trigger some conversations. It will trigger some, some questions that people might have. Why is that? Why is that? And I think we can almost, you know, I have a different attitude 
uh, about the monuments though. Mm-hmm. You know, those, those monuments, some people say, well, let's just keep them up because they're history. <laughs> okay. And, and we should not take down these Confederate monuments. And my response is that, yeah, those monuments were not built. I mean, they, many of them were built in the, in the 1920s and 1930s. They were not erected following the Civil War. They were erected to intimidate people who were fighting, Black people who were fighting for racial equality in this country. Well, and we had the daughters of uh, the Confederacy, mm-hmm. you know, that were responsible for that. And they were definitely on a mission with these monuments. You know, they wanted their uh, lost cause of, of you know, the right. South to, to be, and their, their version of the narrative to be passed down from one generation to the next. And not only it extended, you know, uh, not just with the monuments, but also to textbooks. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, here you have, you know, a whole um, whole narrative that was, you know, skewed in that perspective. And, you know, those those women were definitely on a mission with, with all of that. Right, and right. I would say that they were successful, very successful, because here we are dealing with it still today. Yeah, I guess in my mind, I'm, I'm just, and it just kind of clicked not long ago, you know, when we try to cover up these signs that says color, water fountains, colored entrance, or, or as a singing theater. Um, is that, is that the same as trying to remove a Confederate monument? Is, is that a similar kind of mindset that says, let's get, let's get rid of these. So we don't have to think about them. Let's leave them up mm-hmm. so people can think about them. But I, I also look at colored water fountain and that was a symbol of Jim Crowism mm-hmm. intentionally. Absolutely. A, a monument to the Confederacy was, was done intentionally to intimidate people, to scare people. And there's no place, in my opinion, in, in today's society, particularly in the public square. If you want to put that in your backyard, if you want to put that in your, uh, in, I wouldn't even want it in a museum, a public museum anyway, but wherever you put it, <laughs> And, and it's your decision to do that. If it's a private type of uh, situation, go ahead and do that. But the public square belongs to everybody. Absolutely. And, and for, for people to, uh, some people anyway, who say, yeah, it's, you know, that's just a statue. That's just a, a monument. No, it's not just a statue. It's not just a monument. It's a uh, um, it's symbolic of a time in our in our state's history, in our nation's history, where um, white supremacy was at its height. You know, Absolutely, that, and you hear the phrase a lot of times: "It's heritage and not hate." Yes. Well, it is a heritage of hate. Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> part of your heritage is hate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Right. So I I just um, I I. I hope we can continue to see some, some action on the part of, of city leaders. I, I think there was a referendum recently in, in Forest County uh, regarding whether to get rid of the Confederate monuments. Do you yes, there was. And, there was. And, 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 and the people who wanted it to stay ended up getting more votes, right? Exactly. Now, if we could just get rid of uh, Nathaniel Bedford Forrest's portrait <laughs> in the courthouse, 
house <laughs> and take that down. <laughs> yes. Nathan Bedford for some people who may not know his background, he was one of the founders of the founder of the Ku Klux Klan and the county um, where we were born, Forest County is named for him. And there are just so many symbols in, in Mississippi of, of these segregationists, these white supremacists, and, and they're being held up to as pillars of the community, as, as great statesmen, and you know, afforded all of this, these, these great monuments and all. And, and, and nobody stepped back and said, well, what effect is this having on our, on our black people here when they have to mm -hmm. every day walk by one of these symbols? And, and, and I'm, I'm praying that the day will come. I, Mississippi finally changed its flag. You know, after. Yes, yes. And I did get to see the statue of Mr. Vernon Damer okay. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right there in front of the courthouse. So, yes. you know, like we say, change uh, is happening. It just takes time. And, you know, our tendency, I think, as a whole is to sweep things under the rug. If, it's, if it was bad, a bad part of history, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to go there. We don't want to revisit those, those lessons that we should have learned or should be learning. We mm -hmm. just sweep it under the rug, forget it ever happened and move on. But we can't do that. Um, I think as Miss Murley Evers-Williams says, you know, it's, it's a wound and for a wound to heal properly, you know, we have to let it air out, you yes. know, we can't just keep it covered. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't heal if it's covered all the time. It has to, all of its pain and its, its um, ugliness, they have to be exposed. You have to see it or it doesn't, it, it doesn't change anything. And, and there are people who definitely think that, as you said earlier, people thought we were in this post-racial moment in our history where, okay, we, we've elected a black president twice. We we're doing all these other things. So we don't need to worry about race. And I think that's a, that's a huge, huge mistake for people mm -hmm. to, and it, and it, it bore itself out because after president Obama was in office, um, you just look at the, the vile things that were said about him and his family. Right. And even after he completed his second term, there's still people saying these ugly things about him. And, you know, I think we're in a post-truth environment where the truth really doesn't matter anymore because we have been uh, told so many times, uh, been gaslighted so many times. And mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, I hope you're right. And I, I have to gauge and, and, and check myself from time to time to, um, look at is the glass half full or is it half empty and by nature i tend to be a very optimistic person and look at a glass as being half full rather than half empty mm -hmm. but i think the last i guess since the the death of george floyd and even before then um, to see the lack of progress and you know with these 70 something million people who said despite his racism we're still going to vote for him uh, you know, Trump will be gone, but these people will still be out there with their MAGA hats and with their social media memes and so forth. So their Trump flags in the back of their pickup trucks. And yes, <laughs> and, and it's and to me, I'll be honest with you. When I see one of those Trump flags or MAGA flags, I have the same visceral reaction to that as I do when I see a Confederate flag. 
Yes. It has the same impact on me. I, I have to, I have to steal myself. I have to prepare myself and wonder, does that potentially represent a threat to me? Exactly. Because I know what the Confederate flags and those who support the Confederate flag, I know what they, what they think about me. And I, and I have, and I just choose to believe that those people who proudly display their, their Trump flags and, and, and paraphernalia, they, they have the same attitude about me as those people who fly the Confederate flag. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Andrea, I, I just admire you for what you are doing. And I think you are a good example for some people to follow. Um, you, you're from Mississippi. You're not somebody who's from the North and said, you know, I'm coming South here and boy, we, we know how to do things. And, and, and I'm not bringing all this baggage with me. You, you were, you came from uh, Forest County, but you had the blessing and the good fortune of, of having someone important in your life who, who taught those lessons about bigotry and hatred and discrimination early in your life and you internalize those and you you allow those uh, those teachings to guide you and to propel you forward and and i know it's a journey and it and, and that's an overused word sometimes and and i think my my advice uh, to those who are on this journey is to always be vigilant always be vigilant about what's going on externally and what's going on internally. Because we, we live in a racist society that can sometimes, uh, you, you can find yourself, and I'm not saying this has happened to you, but it's possible that you can find yourself going back in that journey and saying, hmm, I wonder if that's true. Start having those, start maybe revisiting some of those isms and, and, and things that you've been taught because we, we get bombarded by it so much. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I like to say, you know, with my journey and being from Mississippi that I'm from it, but I'm not of it. Yeah. So it's, it's so important to, um, to continue to be introspective and to continue to grow and, and to learn. And, uh, you know, I am a lifelong learner. Um, and this is what I feel that my purpose is. Um, my responsibility is, is to educate others, you know, um, about that time in history and where we find ourselves now. And, and my hat's off to you for doing that. And, and you understand the, uh, the challenges of, of being where you are. And one of those is that people will push back. People will um, label you. They will call oh, you. They, they most definitely will. I, I have lost you know, family members. I've lost friends. I've lost acquaintances. Um, but I can sleep at night um, mm. knowing what I'm doing and feeling that I'm doing the right thing. But that's just part of it. <laughs> yes, that's that's part of the sacrifice, if you will, and and being able to make that that choice. Am I going to be a better human being and stick to my values and promote racial equality and social justice on the one hand, or am I going to sacrifice all of that for this for the so that I can keep this relationship with this with this person who who doesn't who's not with it, who is stuck in the past. Exactly. And, and I think that's a tough call. 
for, for lots of people, particularly with, with family members. And I, I used to tell people all the time, you know, you, you have to be willing to uh, give up some, some relationships. And, and only you can determine to what extent you're willing to do that. And I know during those, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas and the family with COVID, hopefully people not, are not gathering as, as they've done in the past, but right. you know, if you're sitting around the, the table and uh, someone utters a, a racial slur or wants to um, entertain people with a racial joke, uh, and this is a beloved person in your family, this is somebody who everybody, uh, maybe the, the patriarch or the matriarch of the family, and you hear that, what do you say? You know, that's a calculus that you have to do when you say, am, am I willing to be taken off next year's Thanksgiving? Right. <laughs> and, and for so many times growing up and even as a, as an adult, a young adult, um, you know, that silence, it's just more comfortable to be silent than to speak up and say, wait a minute. No, not in my presence. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm not going to allow that. Um, but thank goodness for me personally, I did have my grandmother as an example. And I look to people um, like Freedom Rider, Miss Joan Trump, Trumpier Mulholland, you know, um, mm-hmm. yes. who was in a similar, you know, lost her family over standing up for, um, you know, wanting to make a difference. And, you know, I, I look at things like that and I think, you know what, you know, um, two perfect examples, you know, for me to, to go by. And if they can do it, I can too. And it just takes one person having the courage to stand up. Um, yes. and say, wait a second, you know, no, this is not how it's going to be. And that, you know, encourages other people as well. So hopefully I'm, I'm going to, you know, continue to learn those lessons in my journey and to apply them in my life. And I have three daughters, so I want them to be able oh. to do the same as well. And See, that's, that, that's what's really important is that you, you are modeling for your daughters. And I know your husband, Frank, y'all on the same page with this. And you present to your daughters this this united front, and it's not like you're bickering and say, "Trump is great." No, <laughs> right, right. You know, you're, you're, and I think there are some families where you have that division where somebody is on this side of the political spectrum and someone's on another side, and that makes it hard on the kids, I suppose. It is. And, you know, we still have family members back in Mississippi, you know, who very much are of a different ideology and mindset. And so that's been a topic of conversation we've had to address with our children as well. You know, when you're in those situations and you have family members who are speaking out about this or who are just, you know, blatantly racist, you know, with their comments, you know, how do you handle that? You know, do you sit there, you know, comfortably and in, in silence, you know, because you don't want to upset someone or, you know, make someone mad or angry, you know, or do you speak up, you know, and you have the courage to say, wait a minute, I don't agree with that. And to, you know, open that dialogue. And so there's, these are the types of conversations we try to have with our children. And it's not easy. It's, it's, it's a very, sure. um, very challenging thing, but hopefully, you know, I think my children by now know <laughs> where I ended. <laughs> you know, they're they're pretty comfortable, um, you know, in expressing themselves too at this point. And um, just recently, I, I had my youngest daughter, Abigail, who had an incident at school where um, she had a classmate of hers that said, you know, a, a racist comment. 
And my youngest daughter, who was only 11, just said, uh, I don't agree with that. That's not right. You don't need to be saying that. And, you know, um, just opened up this whole conversation with this classmate of hers. So um, hopefully, you know, we're, we're setting a good Yes. That, as a parent, you have to say, yes, yes, yes it's working. Yes. When, <laughs> when you are setting the example, you're setting the bar and they are, they are reaching that bar and probably going to exceed that bar as they get older. Um, Andrea, I want to thank you again for agreeing to be here. I know you have some other activities going on today. Your your daughter's one of your daughters is having a birthday party, right? Yes, she's turning eighteen. Eighteen, yes, 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 yes. senior We're, year, and oh, I'm just can't believe it. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, and I'm not going to ask you this, but when when I was my kids were getting older, somebody would say to me, Anthony, that means somebody's getting old. But I, I say I'm getting older. Doesn't mean you're just getting older. Older, that's because right. As parents, we, we, we can always look back and have those just absolutely fun memories. And, and I think in your case with your children, and I felt the same way about my kids, how we instill those values in them. And, and you see those values being manifest in their, uh, their behavior and, and, and how they stand up for the things that you have taught them and, and that's something your legacy will be with them for many, many years to come. And I want to thank you one more time for being here today and continue your journey. And I encourage any of our other listeners who, <clears throat> who are contemplating getting on that, that journey of being anti-racism, uh, uh, read, read White Fragility, um, read uh, Ibram Kendi's book, K-E-N-D-I book, uh, read Pushing Forward by uh, Andrew Ledwell and, and Hezekiah Watkins. And of course, I have a few books out there you can take a look at uh, on Amazon. But I, I think it begins with self-awareness. It begins with how do I want to start this journey and, and, and knowing that um, it's not going to be easy. It's not it's, Abs- it's, it's, absolutely it's, it's uncomfortable. And someone described it once as like running a marathon in mud. Yes, that's a very good description. And, and I will throw this out there as well. Um, I'm currently finishing up uh, the sequel or, or the, the second part to Pushing Forward, but um, told from my perspective. Okay. Uh, and so as a white woman um, growing up from Mississippi, who now has the views and perspectives that I do and kind of following my journey to how I started and where I am now. So that will be um, published later on this next coming year. So okay. Okay. Yeah, just well, maybe to- maybe we can get you well. back on and and talk about that because I think we need more books from white uh, individuals who are uh, on that journey and your perspectives because I think there are white people who will listen to you before they'll listen to me. Okay, <laughs> and and, I, and that's okay. But as long as there's somebody, some allies out there who are in this struggle together with us, and and you are making a difference, so. Once again, my friend, thank you for being here and, and happy birthday to your brand new 18-year-old. Oh, <laughs> brand new thank year for you. Her. Okay. Thank you. And thank All you right. so much for having me, Dr. Harris. Always oh, a pleasure. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, that is it for today. And we'll be back again with another episode here pretty soon. Bye.